Welcome to The Real Work, a podcast about opening access to career success and workplace belonging for everyone. Presented to you by the team at Lantern Rouge. Through these community conversations, we want to learn and share how careers actually work and how we show up for each other in all manners of professions, unpacking the experiences that shape us and how we can each play a role in designing our future of work. Here is your host, Alex Lamb, an organizational psychologist and the chief executive of Lantern Rouge. My guest today is Dr. Summer May Finlay. Dr. Finlay is a Yorta Yorta woman who is passionate about social justice, particularly for Indigenous people in Australia and globally. She has a PhD and extensive experience in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander public health research, policy and communications, and holds several posts as a postdoctoral research fellow, lecturer, and as a contributing writer and editor for various media and journals. She holds key positions across several associations and global working groups for Indigenous non-communicable diseases. In our conversation, we touch on inclusiveness in public health, HR policy that recognises Indigenous family structure, university as workplaces, and Indigenous representation in the media, particularly through COVID. We talk about practical ways to be a changemaker in the office and how we foster a broader sense of psychological safety amongst colleagues. Dr. Finlay is generous in sharing her experiences at work and in society. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know her and I believe you will too. So it's a fantastic bio and welcome Dr. Finlay. <laughs> May I call you Summer? <laughs> you can. <laughs> Thank you. Any, any people I don't like will have to call me Dr. Finlay, I think. Fair enough. All the people that are in trouble with you. Um, yep. I, I definitely wanted to, to make sure that we had your permission to do that because doctor is such a huge achievement and congratulations again. <laughs> Thank you. So our last guest just wanted me to let you know um, her parting words to you were, you're going to love this. So no pressure <laughs> on you or on me. <laughs> but um, she's a, um, she's a um, topographer and a street artist just outside of Canberra and we had a great conversation last week. So that was her gift oh. to pass on to you. <laughs> Lovely. I'll have to think of a gift for the next uh, presentation. Exactly. That, that'll be my last question to you. Um, so based on your bio, I mean, just hearing the, the wealth of experiences you've had, you've clearly had a lot of opportunity through those organisations, your study and your research to do a lot of, a lot of thinking, I would say, um, and of course a lot of observation and, and personal experience around structures and policy initiatives in your space. So where do you see the opportunity for public health, both as an employer and as, you know, servicing the people who are receiving those health services? How can, how can you see inclusiveness kind of bubbling up or coming to the forefront there? Yeah. So public health or population health is actually something that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people do really well because mm. we tend to live and work as a collective society. So actually looking outside of ourselves is what we traditionally do. So I think public health organisations or other health organisations that want to actually branch into public health can benefit from that worldview that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people bring. So mm. structurally, if organisations are recognising the value that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people bring and the fact that there's actually a lot of that they could learn from the way that the Aboriginal community controlled health sector, for example, actually run their businesses and think about population health as a core part of their clinical health. So... Mm. 
if organisations can kind of flip their dialogue rather than thinking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as in deficit or as, as a sum total of the negative and start thinking about the value that they bring to their organisation, I actually think we'll start to see a shift. Mm. And how, what does that look like? I, I know you've shared with me around definitely that, that collective, you know, and even an extended family sense, like you shared in the past some sort of practical ways that organisations can reflect and respect that extended family network. So can you share a bit about that? Yeah, so on a, on a, on a practical level, for example, here in Australia, when we talk about uh, carers leave, for example, mm. the strict definition tends to be the nuclear family. Uh, that's not always the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families are constructed and we may actually have people in our families that are not biologically related. And so thinking about making sure that your HR policies, and particularly that one, actually are inclusive of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander definitions of family. Uh, so it may be that you're, there's a cousin that has a child that needs looking after, or my godson who's uh, is, is an Aboriginal um, boy, I would look after him for his mother even though we're not biologically related because she's so close, she's like a sister. And that's just mm -hmm. the way our families care for each other. So... And, and organisations probably need to start thinking and talking to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about what it is that they need. And that's just one example that I can think of. And it's probably the most obvious example. Yeah. And when just hearing your, your answer, talking about the health sector, and of course, you know, you've got many hats. <laughs> this is one sphere, I guess, you're operating in. And that other sphere is, is the university world or the research world. So yes. anything you recognise or see from there, with regards to creating inclusiveness like that's either done well or that you think could be brought across to other sectors? So the university sector has this approach where there is uh, expertise within a particular area uh, and, and it's probably like other areas as well. When it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health or even just more generally, um, they really give us the leeway to actually run the business or the, the subject like we're um, the experts in that space. And I know that mm. a lot of organisations often don't value Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as highly as they would other people with expertise. Mm. And so I think it's actually making sure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are given the freedom to actually create their business to, make, to, to meet the needs of both the community that they're serving as well as the uh, employer. And, you know, there needs to be an inherent trust I think that sometimes while is really fantastic in the university sector, doesn't always happen externally. And mm. again, I, I do sometimes think it's because there is this misunderstanding or this uh, false dialogue around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, and the negative stereotypes that we see. Mm. Um, and, and I don't see that as much in the university sector. Mm. So is that a media element? Of course, that's another sphere that you operate a lot in. Uh. <laughs> Where does this false stereotype get? perpetuated from I mean that's that's a big question I realize it comes from so many angles but my my um my leading question is where does the media come into that look that's why I started writing I actually mm. started writing for croaky because I was sick and tired of seeing the way the media portrayed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or the really one-dimensional way that we were mm. portrayed so when there was a crisis in one of our communities 
that crisis seems to be all that's communicated about that community. And so the whole narrative about that community becomes that crisis. And there's lots of other things like all communities that are happening that are positive as well as negative. And so the media has a large role to play in the ongoing stereotyping, which actually feeds racism uh, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other minority groups. So it's not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, We've seen the media talk about African gangs in Melbourne. Yeah. Mm, uh, they're even more specific than that, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So the media has a large role to play, but again, so does our education system, and it mm-hmm. is getting better. Our education systems are getting better, but uh, we do actually need to see some some significant changes if we're actually to have a society where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can just be. Mm, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I have a small anecdote there, and then I've got a question. Um, I've got a little boy who's 14, 15 months and so he's pre-education but his counting books and his alphabet books are Australian and they're uh, illustrated by an Aboriginal um, artist. Her name's Bronwyn um, Bancroft and um, and we always joke because, I mean, they're, they're beautiful, they're lovely, he's so engaged with them but she gets to X and there's no Aboriginal an- animal that she brings up <laughs> expert. So it just says X for X-ray and then it goes on to Y for Yabby and she's got a beautiful picture for Yabby. So he's getting a great little, you know, pre, pre-K education, but it's um, we need to find education for the, for the letter X. <laughs> That's my. Um, but so on that, that train of thought that you were having, like around media and the role, my sense is like I've seen a lot more, Aboriginal representation in the media through COVID. Interestingly, I don't know if you've like had a similar set. You're you're much more immersed in it than I am, and I'm living overseas, so I'm probably getting a very different perspective. But I think because, in my perception, you tell me if I'm if I'm thinking along the same lines, is there's there seems to be a lot of Aboriginal people in the arts, and the arts has been disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, and also art is an expression of this human experience and some of the, you know, the, the more nuanced experiences that are coming out. And so because I'm a dork and I watch a lot of ABC and SBS, there seems to be a lot more dialogue. So I don't know, one, do you see the same? Or two, do you think that this is an opportunity, an inflection point, or is there some kind of like um, downside? Because obviously there's a lot of the the real feelings are coming through the anger the frustration is is absolutely palpable um how does that come through or like how does that question land for you what's your reflections um so there certainly has been uh, a fair bit of conversation around the arts because you're right uh, and we talk about arts more broadly here including Mm. the music industry theater Mm. and obviously um other types of arts But there's also been a lot of conversation in the media about how well the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander sector is doing, at least in media like Crokey. Uh, And when you're talking about ABC and SBS, they've also been showcasing a lot of the uh, dialogues that the um, Prime Minister has been having with Pat Turner, the CEO of Nacho, and also the chair of the Coalition of Peaks, because what they've been doing while COVID's been happening is um, negotiating the new closing the gap targets. So there's a range of reasons why we've actually been seeing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people increase yeah. in the media. And I actually think that it's a positive because when you're normalising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on your screens, you're actually just normalising us generally. I know that's probably not quite the answer you were looking for. No. But um, it, for me, it has been, uh, I have seen an increase. But interestingly enough, there is an independent 
research project which has identified the significant lack of diversity in the media particularly mm. um, and including SBS as well. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I mean, whatever your answer is, is is, is a good one. <laughs> so I completely, you're very submerged in in what's happening locally and I'm obviously not there. So it's a very much for me an outside in perspective at this point. Do you see any other, like opportunity makes it sound so, it's the wrong word, but do you see any other emergence that comes through COVID for this community? Like any other trend that, yeah. I do actually. So um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, despite the fact that we are more likely to have chronic diseases and comorbidity, so more than one, and a range of other um, potential health concerns, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been uh, underrepresented in the COVID figures. So we've had, we've seen very few deaths, if any, I I can think of, I think there may have been one, and we've seen very few cases of COVID. Now, the reason for that is unclear at this point, but mm. one of the potential reasons is the fact that we have um, an Aboriginal community-controlled health sector here in Australia, which is Aboriginal services run by and for Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. So they actually have, before COVID was even declared a pandemic as early as February, actually started to work with their communities and produce resources to keep our community safe. Yeah. They worked, they they lobbied and advocated for community closures really early on. Yeah. And so what we've actually seen is the fact that when Aboriginal community controlled health services actually take charge and are given the license to do that by the government, then well, not even the license. They weren't given the license. The license the government just didn't interfere. Uh, we can see the strength and the power that these communities mm. have to keep our mob safe. So mm. for me, what that does to the, demonstrates to the broader community is that we actually just need to be leading the charge on making sure our communities are healthy and safe. And that often isn't something that is considered because, again, most of us think most people think of us in deficit. And if, mm. if you think about us just in our deficits, you'll never see our strengths. So this mm. is a while it's a tragic time for so many families. This is actually a time where it's showcasing exactly what Aboriginal communities are capable of. Yeah, voice and, as you said, like not waiting to be given a licence. There's a, this is what we need and here's the movement. And so does that happen through, like the, the example that comes to my mind, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of them, but I know in particular the Northern Territory was really clear about its border closures um, and that because of its, you know, it, it has a larger proportion, my understanding, you tell me if I'm right, um, you know, a significant population of Aboriginal people in that case, that that was a significant part of the decision. So is that, is that, a, is that a, a movement or a group or an organisation behind that or is it a community um, swell? So, there's a, so the Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations are really political as well as mm. offering um, primary healthcare services to their members and their clients. So you've got a large number of um, really proactive and politically savvy organisations in the Northern Territory. So you've mm. got AMSANT, which is the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance Northern Territory, uh, and you've also got... Uh, big services like MeWatch in Nullumboy in Arnhem Land and Congress in Alice Springs. So these services would have been collaborating and working with the the state Mm. government to actually protect their communities. Um, And that's, again, part of the benefit of being such a collected 
collective society is that when times like this, we come together and we work on solutions as a collective rather than going it alone and taking the individualistic approach, which I see many people and nations taking. Yeah, (laughs) noted. I also see that. It's really interesting. And so bringing it back into an organisation perspective, when you were saying um, um, positive shift is when you can see people just taking action, not having a, having a licence or maybe being handed it or even having that space created, but like saying, no, this is what we need and stepping forward. I acknowledge that's a huge, like a hard thing for anyone to do is to just claim space. When you see that inside an organisation, how would, how would other people within a business, like my sense, and I know I'm mumbling around this, this question, but everybody's got their different um, objectives, agendas, things that they're trying to get on, onto the, the radar of a business. If I was that individual within an organisation, what are the kind of steps or the voice or the, 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 the things that I could be doing to kind of raise that and elevate that and get it onto, um, I guess, a, a leadership memo, so to speak? Yeah. It's actually a really big question because I think mm. largely it comes down to the individual dynamics of an organisation but also the personality and approach of somebody. I'm a bit of an agitator, so a bit of a, a dog with a bone. I don't know if that will resonate with your wife. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, it is about so I'm the kind of person where if I hear a no but I know it's a really good cause, I try and figure out why it's a no and then try and actually overcome those potential barriers so Mm. I think it's about persistence and about building a a business case or evidence around why this is important and why the organization will benefit from this Mm -hmm. so um, I don't always think that organizations or companies should do things just because it benefits them but they do actually have to sell it to their shareholders or to um, whoever owns the company and knowing that there is a solid business case that will actually benefit both the people that they're referring to but also the uh, um, organisation can't hurt. When it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stuff specifically, I mean, if you're in Australia, your company is built on Aboriginal land. And I think acknowledging and respecting that and engaging with the Aboriginal community appropriately and even promoting particular causes, like uh, two days ago it was uh, Indigenous Literacy day Mm, I saw that Um, on your Twitter yeah yeah so even just simple things like promoting that within your organization which is a charitable organization to generate potential donations I think is a is a big thing to do yeah and recognizing um that's definitely something I've been more conscious of since we've been in discussion and and I I see things like that pop up and part of me thinks oh yeah it's good for awareness but it carries through to other aspects of what you do it just it, it does follow you it follows your thoughts and therefore has, has a, a longer tail, I guess, in, in, in terms of the impact it can have. What does it feel like for that individual? I mean, you're talking about your own experience and, and I'm, you know, thinking about multitudes of people who are embedded in their organisations of, you know, you, you, you said you're an agitator. For people who maybe don't feel like they want to be an organiser or be a voice or be a, <laughs> I can imagine, and I've even seen you say it as well, like it's not my job to educate everybody and I feel, I mm. genuinely feel that. Like where does that friction come from, from the individual to feel like, look, I, I, the respect is a, is a foundation that we believe in, then how do I move the agenda if I personally don't want to be the um the champion (laughs) moving forward. I wonder about individual friction in that sense. 
there's there's soft advocacy and there's there's obviously more blatant advocacy and not everyone's Mm. going to do what I do which is you know sometimes be the front person or the agitator but there are gentle ways of of advocating and it could be as simple as uh sending an article around to people you think might actually like it so not a group email to everybody within the company but to, to, to your colleagues that have expressed an interest in a particular topic uh it is maybe thinking about how you can include alternative voices in the conversation. So it might be, oh, um, I actually think, well, it would be really good to, to join this conversation. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's what we do, I think, in life generally is start planting the seed. And, and you were talking about how with uh, the Literacy Foundation, mm. um, it follows you around. And just planting those seeds and planting them over and over again in a really gentle way is actually really effective as well. So, mm, and that's what embracing. I used to do when I was younger, when I didn't have as much confidence as I do now and I didn't have the skills that I have obviously developed over time, but it would literally be just those little tiny seeds which um, if everybody is doing that, obviously Mm. makes a significant impact. Yeah. And for any movement, like we think about, you know, a feminist movement um, as an example, it's one that I can put myself in the shoes of. You see a full spectrum of people who have their styles, as you say, the seed planters and the the, the more um, kind of, you know, long range embracing kind of style, the kind of more agitator, like it's assertive, but let's deal with it front on. But then you absolutely have a space for, for, for anger and for frustration and for the more aggressive style of getting in front of people, which I don't begrudge any movement. And I know I mentioned that, that previously, that, that now we're having a moment in time where we see feelings that were suppressed, that were real, they're coming up. They come up through the media. They come up in relationships. They come up through glaringly obvious things that are baked into systems, etc. My sense is that some organisations have the intent and know that it's the right thing. They don't need the business case always. They just as humans know it's the right thing to build inclusive organisations. But they don't know how when they crack open the, the feelings that are very valid, what they do with them next you know, how do you be a part of, and, you know, reconciliation is such a beautiful language in Australia, but the how part <laughs> is the, I, I, I don't know if I'm articulating that well, of like how, how do you embrace and let people feel angry and then what do you do with it? Not trying yeah. to solve it, but, yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess it's like any change management though. Mm. It's a change management process and, and I think when you're talking about, I mean, we're not going to see massive shifts in most organisations, so it is going to be less in your face. Um, If we're talking about people being angry, it's actually giving them safe spaces to actually express that and then work through that. Um, Anger is a helpful emotion most of the time when it's used constructively Mm. and it actually lets us, as you would know as a psychologist, explore different things and and I mean you're probably better explaining this than me I'm using you know Layla I just bumbled all my questions don't worry about it (laughs) (laughs) obviously not (laughs) but I think I mean I'm a person that believes that we should be expressing our emotions and feeling them we can't bottle them up Mm. and if we do we're actually not really allowing other people to see the impact so I don't get angry that often particularly Mm. in the place for example but I know if I get really angry about a particular thing that's happening in one of my organisations that I work for, people know, uh-oh, we've stepped over the line. Um, and 
So I think that we need to be able to express that to then actually explore it and understand why that emotion is occurring, where it's coming from and how we address the issues that have caused it. So for an organisation, I appreciate that it can be really challenging. And if we're talking, for example, around Black Lives Matter and you have black people and non-people of colour um, within your organisation, that actually can be significant tensions so Mm. you need to make sure that you're protecting both in that to actually make sure that the conversation doesn't disintegrate into something that is actually really unhelpful yeah Um, but but there are a lot of trying conversations at the moment I would imagine particularly around COVID and approaches to COVID Um, I don't envy uh, managers and CEOs having to navigate some of the challenges at the moment Mm. Yeah, and to do it, I think that's why ignorance is actually a strategy. Bliss, yeah. Yeah, yeah, ignorance is bliss of like the the path of least resistance is don't open the box, (laughs) Um, which isn't brave but is also defensive, like it's a mechanism, I would say, to... It is a mechanism Uh, and when we're talking about dominant culture, it has been the mechanism... Mm. quite some time so sweeping under the carpet the injustices done to indigenous people in all countries as well as um, black people more generally so when we're doing that I absolutely understand why people want to stay in their bubble and they don't Mm. want to get uncomfortable but I'm not dying and so while you're not you but you know whoever is feeling like they actually want to stay ignorant your uncomfortableness if you get out of that bubble is a damn sight easier than watching people die or be sick. Uh, So I would say just put your shoes in an Indigenous family, like put your feet in an Indigenous family's shoes or that of a black family and think maybe I can get a little uncomfortable. Yeah. You know? Um, Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I I did see how long it's been, I think, again, like... um, on Twitter, <laughs> the um, the font of all knowledge lately, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, how long it's been since the the Aboriginal deaths in custody um, report came out? Like thirty years. Mm. It's been like yeah. most of our lives since that's come through. And for people not to, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on where the failings are there, because to have that out for so long and to not have people in those shoes or understanding, there's nothing more serious than death. Mm. Can't um, take that back. You, yeah. So how 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 do you bring that to the forefront? Like how do how do you get that into people's caring radius? I, if whatever we've done so far obviously hasn't been it. We need politicians to stop taking a law and order approach. Mm. Law and order. I absolutely believe there is a need for law and order on on a a, a level that protects society. So if we're talking about, you know, um, sexual crimes or, um, you know, violent crimes, but then when we're talking about public drunkenness and people Mm. are actually locked up for public drunkenness and die because of that, I mean, this should be about pastoral care. This isn't a law and order issue. If someone has passed out on a train, like happened with Tanya Day, who then died while she was locked up, when she could have been at home with her family and she wouldn't have died, we actually have a problem with our, our legal system. So what we need is politicians to stop actually taking the very popular route of law and order and start thinking about the human 
aspect. We have had, so people think, for example, that uh, Black, um, Black Lives Matter is something that's not relevant here in Australia because they don't always know about things like the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody. Yeah. And essentially the, most of the 330-plus recommendations have not been implemented. We still have people being locked up for public drunkenness. So for me, it has to start with the politicians and they need to start thinking about all of their population, not just the people that are actually going to put them in power, mm. the dominant culture. Economic force, yeah, mm. and dominant culture, as you say as well, in Australia being the, the white culture um, yeah. or is it a culture, white population, yeah. Uh, no, white, it is a culture. It is okay. um, sociologically speaking. Yeah, it's definitely a culture. Mm, that's interesting. Um, but yeah. Here there's been a big push. Obviously there's very different histories, different um, accumulation of experiences that lead to that moment in that cell, like micro things that um, accumulate and create that, that perfect storm, horrible perfect storm. Um, here, for similar reasons, some of the public sentiment has been towards defund the police because if the aggression and the violence is happening in that space and that's where we're seeing people get, you know, um, like that's, that's where you're seeing the outcome, the brunt of that, that social movement. Has that been discussed in Australia as part of this? Is that a language there's, on the street? Yeah, yeah so there's de definitely been um, some discussion around defunding the police. It probably hasn't been as big a conversation as things like Royal Commissioners Death in Custody, mm. um, making sure that people aren't locked up for fine infringement or for public drunkenness. But there certainly has been some conversation about it, but I don't think it's had quite as much traction as what it's had in the US. Here in Australia, what we normally are talking about are the structural issues. Mm. So... Um, just a cop on the street actually doesn't have a lot of autonomy. A senior person will tell them to do something. They have to do it as part of their, their job. So what we need to be looking at is the structural issues, uh, which, again, is around things like what do you do with, when you find someone who is drunk on a train? Do you take them home? Is that what the first recommendation is? Um, so thinking about the more humanitarian approach mm is what we're asking for more generally from everybody, politicians, the police, um, the average person on the street. Yeah. And is the police even the person you call in that situation? Are there other health services coming back to your sector? Because you're dealing with a very discreet instance there, but there's this accumulation of history that's led that person to that moment. And so it's, um, it's not a, <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. it a different kind of professional? Yeah. I, I've had this conversation. I've got uh, a very good girlfriend who is a, a policewoman, so we've had some interesting conversations during uh, a number of uh, events here in Australia. But one of the things that, you know, she has acknowledged is that police are not actually trained as health professionals. Yeah. And in most circumstances, or social workers, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and in most circumstances, health professionals or social workers would be better placed. Mm. Or psychologists, not to say we solve everything. <laughs> no, but you're right. I think psychologists actually have a better insight into human behaviour and actually how to treat people appropriately rather than... And I think police 
in all fairness, they see the they, they, they rarely see the best of society. They're often seeing people at yeah. their worst. Yeah. And so they have an accumulated history too of things that they're bringing into that moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. And so all of these things that we're talking about that are happening on the street in people's lives and as we were saying, when we bring them back into an organisation, letting that discussion and that dialogue happen because it's people's real life and we're, a lot of us are still working from home and there's this, you know, combination now. It's, it's not work and life, it's life <laughs> mashed together. So being able to create that dialogue we often talk about creating a psychologically safe space where people have voice and where they can um, both express um, opposite opinions, um, know that they can make mistakes and make, um, like, learn because they're going to say things that are wrong, they're going to say things that are right, that, you know, and, and that, that there's a positive intent amongst it. So how do you... How do you see that play out in your workplaces? Like, do you feel like you have, you and your colleagues have psychological safety to talk about the things that are important that you see come up from your life into your work? I don't work at places that I don't feel safe. Yeah, um, good point. It, it, well, it, as an Aboriginal woman, when I'm working in Aboriginal affairs, you have to feel safe. Otherwise, mm. I just, I, it just won't be healthy for me and I wouldn't be able to achieve what I wanted to achieve for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people more broadly. But what that safety looked like is exactly what you were talking about. It has to be positive intent. So uh, when I was younger, I probably would get frustrated, annoyed or even angry with people if they did say the wrong thing. But I've come to realise that sometimes people say the wrong thing because they don't know any better or they're trying to find the right words and they just don't know what they are. Um, but the issue that I have with, with people generally, and this also happens in the workplace, is when they disagree, argue or dispute. Mm. Um, something that I'm telling them in a way that tells me that they're actually not really listening or they're not really mm. willing to listen. But in the workplace, I so part of my role at the University of Wollongong is working with my colleagues to include Indigenous content in the curriculum. So mm. that sometimes actually is having some tough conversations and it's a little uncomfortable sometimes for both of us but it's actually recognising that we're both here because we want to do something right and that we both probably need to be a little more mindful of what the other person's thinking and feeling. Um, but that takes, but I have to say, I remember having a conversation with a gentleman who was a non-Aboriginal man and he was wondering why when he went to a forum, when he expressed his views about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, uh, an Aboriginal man shut him down and got really angry. And I said, right, tell me about this forum. And he, I said, was it majority Aboriginal or majority non-Aboriginal? And he goes, majority non-Aboriginal. And I said, great. So were there lots of non-Aboriginal people sharing their views? And he said, oh, probably. And I said, well, did you actually stop and think that maybe that, that Aboriginal man when he was sitting in there was feeling like he didn't have a voice, that he didn't have the capacity and that that's probably how he's felt his entire life. So when he was getting cross with you and you got annoyed with him, you weren't actually recognising that experience that he's brought with him that's culminated with him telling you off. So yeah. maybe as a non-Aboriginal person, you need to sit back, listen and watch and let Aboriginal people speak first and then maybe, maybe if you think it's appropriate, have a conversation. Mm. Don't always, I know everyone has a right to have an opinion, but it doesn't mean those opinions are always right and it doesn't always mean it's the right time to share that opinion. Yeah, thinking about optics I think is 
you know, really reflecting on yourself and then thinking like, how does this look? <laughs> yeah. Can be a really important thing. Um, yeah. And it's a, what's your thoughts on white men at the moment? That's a good question. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm living with a white man. Talk about God. White man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I know a lot of them and I think they come in all forms. Like some are great, some are terrible. They come everywhere in between. Um, and I think they're having a psychological experience at the moment because there's a perceived, um, yeah. you know, you see the worst of it online where people are thinking, okay, I have to resort into my racist misogynist camp because this is where I'm safe and where I'm valued versus, okay, like I'm a modern thoughtful, emotional person and I want to be inclusive of others. And now all of a sudden I've realized that I'm not, uh, like the privileges I had before don't stand anymore. And that, that is something that I just have to notice and recognize. Like I'm not giving sympathy, but there's a very unique experience there as society rebalances or takes a balance for the first time, maybe, because I'm not saying it has been balanced before. Um, yeah. Do you have any perspective on their experience? It is a significant shift. Mm. And you're absolutely right. So they saw the world in a particular way and they were oblivious, I think, on some level to the fact that they were privileged. Mm. And so now that they're being told that they're privileged, they're aware of what they feel they might lose, even though it's not a pie that's kind of no. you know, be cut up and we're taking some of their pie. Mm. I, I, again, it's very much like people who hold prejudicial views or racist views. It's, it's, similar in the sense that they're going to have to face their own uncomfortableness and their own worldview that is now being shattered. So they have to recreate their own identity around this new world. And some of them just don't like it. Um, yeah. And, you know, my dad's a non-Aboriginal man. He's a white fellow and so is my partner. And both of them have had some, I would say, challenging conversations, but interesting conversations. And, I mean, when you have daughters or you're married um, to a woman or, you know, you have other women in your life, I would hope that these men would sit back and actually have a conversation and understand what it's like to be a woman. So mm. my, partner was, my partner's got three younger brothers. He's got no sisters. So he's a little bit oblivious to what women go through often, actually a lot. Um, but even having a conversation with him about sexual harassment and what that looks like, as a woman, and I, I know you've probably had this, you know, we've been whistled at. I've been groped when I was younger out at bars and pubs. Um, sexual assault has occurred. And it happens to all women at different stages and not necessarily all the way up to sexual assault, but women experience. And so actually sharing with him that while he may not have done that to women, there are asshole men in the world, sorry for swearing, uh, yes. that actually do take advantage of that and that's why we need men to be on board with us because they need to talk to other men. It actually shouldn't be our job. I, I actually appreciate the, um, the the lack of safety that you feel because sometimes I feel that as well, particularly um, as an Aboriginal woman who's quite proactive in a number of spaces and uh, also some other female-related issues. I, I do sometimes feel unsafe, but I actually remind myself that if I didn't do it, who will? Mm -hmm. And if I'm a resilient person who has uh, a good work history, 
So I know that if anything happens within my workplace, I'd be able to get another job. So financially, I'll be fine. I have great family support, friends, network. So I've got that kind of personal support that I need. And every time I think about how uncomfortable I am, I think about the fact that I can do this as safer than most people. Yeah. And I and I had a bit of a, a crisis about this a couple of years ago, and I ended up speaking to a friend of mine who was a lawyer, a, a white man, who was a lawyer during um, apartheid in South Africa. Wow. And mm. so he was working in the Aboriginal organisation, so you can imagine which uh, what his attitudes to apartheid were. And he actually said to me, yeah, if you stick your head up, you're likely to get shot at. And he was in the army. So, you know, he tended to use Literal, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you need people to stick their head up if you're going to change the status quo. So you need to decide whether or not that's something that you can live with. Yeah, and, I, and be at brave. Times, at times I'm not brave and at times I actually turn the TV off and turn my phone off and have a weekend where I'm just me. Yeah. And then you go back after being recharged. So. And what do you do to restore yourself so that you can keep contributing and putting your head up? Well... Sometimes I go and get massages. I love massages. Yeah. I yeah. think they solve a multitude of issues. It's another um, downside of COVID. I haven't had one since like February oh. or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I could appreciate that. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's reading a book that is just a book, a novel. So I read fantasy novels because it's complete escapism. Yeah. And sometimes I watch crap TV like Vampire Diaries or uh, Suits or something that is just entertaining for the sake of yeah. entertaining. Bubblegum. Yeah. Is there such a genre as... And I know this is a totally ignorant question, but is there a genre of Aboriginal fantasy novels? Well, there's um, Aboriginal comic book. Okay. There's uh, Aboriginal fantasy TV show, and I actually should remember the name of it, but I can't remember. But there's also Chicklet. So Anita Heiss has written Chicklet, uh, so which is just light, fluffy books. The lead character happens to be Aboriginal, but uh, it is not the main purpose of the book. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so for me, you've got, sorry, I'm just start opening up. So you, we, we actually have a lot of comic book characters as cool. well. Okay. I'll have to check that out. The reason I ask is because I know in, in North America for, um, African-American people, there's a, not just for them, but the, through that movement, there was a, I think it's called Afrofuturismo. I don't have the right language, but it's a whole genre of African-American futuristic fantasy novels okay. <laughs> i think it might be along i'm i'm probably the, the the hollywood version is the um black panther movies of like imagining different scenarios and i find it really beautiful because um one thing that you look at with people in trauma and if i could say that like our histories are full of trauma both individual trauma and cultural trauma of the things that we have done to each other um and targeted at specific populations for those for healing to happen if you look at an individual person healing through post trauma can sometimes happen through fantasy mm. where you use imagined different outcomes to give your brain relief it's not to say we don't acknowledge those things happened or that we don't um, still have to explore them understand them say sorry for them reconcile with them but that if we just want to give our brains a space to say, all right, like we need some restorative recovery neuro time, imagine something different, <laughs> imagine a different outcome. And that's why I love those books because I think a whole culture gets to reimagine itself in its strongest 
most beautiful, like flourished form. So I don't know. I, I don't know if you have any reflection. I don't know what the topic of the comics are, if it has any of that um, service to the culture. Um, the comics aren't comedy, mm. but they're, they're still obviously um, quite entertaining. But for me, when I think about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's relief, we tend to actually use comedy. So you've got black comedy on ABC, which mm. can be challenging for non-Aboriginal people to watch. I think it's hilarious and I love it. Yeah. Um, but comedy generally, like even just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander humour. So you'll find that some of the most traumatised people within our communities still have a fantastic sense of um, humour within their mm. own communities and family. So, mm. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I can certainly appreciate and, and reflecting on we have a strong sense of humour within our community. Yeah. Um, and it's quite a wicked sense of humour too. <laughs> um, and it can be slightly dark that uh, you, you have, and it, and it can sometimes, you know, if you're in um, with a bunch of older women, it can take on this really naughty sexual type sense of humour. <laughs> it's, it's quite funny hearing stuff coming from an elder and you're just like, oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's not, you know, anything that's more than PG, but um, it's still quite funny. So I can appreciate why, you know, that escapism. And that, yeah. 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 And, Probably and why to give I like you, fantasy. Exactly. Like to give you, yeah, yeah, there's so many benefits to it, I think, as well, as long as you're not only in that space, but it gives you one space to kind of retreat to. Yeah, exactly. And so thinking about psychological safety in the workplace, um, you gave me some great stats previously. I, I know you, you're full of acronyms and stats, which I think is fantastic. Okay. <laughs> you probably have to, you know, know those off the top of your head. But my my sense, and I know I'd reflected this to you before, was that I, I had a feeling that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were mostly working in um, either health services or tourism space. And I know that they were working, you know, throughout other industries as well. Do you know that off the top of your head again or do I have to ask you to, <laughs> which which are the areas that they're in? So health and community services are, is the okay. biggest employer of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And um, the Aboriginal community controlled health sector is the largest employer of Aboriginal people within the health space. Okay. So the, the largest, one of the largest people uh, employers. And is that health services delivered by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or is it more for other community members as well? So they are Aboriginal and uh, so Aboriginal community controlled health services are primary health, comprehensive primary health services, which are um, run as NGOs for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Right. But most of them don't exclude non-Aboriginal people from accessing their service. Mm, uh, they, okay. they, have, they have limited resources, so sometimes it might be a partner role um, or a father, so it would be a close relation can use the services, or it can be a non-Aboriginal uh, woman who's going to give birth to an Aboriginal child. Mm. Uh, so, you know, if they need um, prenatal care, they go and see the service. So... We don't tend to be exclusively Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, um, but there are some services within a service that need to be because government only funds it for an Aboriginal person, i.e. dental. Mm. Okay, got you. And so I'm thinking in those spaces because of the nature of the service and because the nature of the, I'm, I'm assuming that the employees are mostly as well Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They're, they're from the community that they're serving or are so they... Sometimes mm. it, it varies. So uh, we know that, for example, only about 50% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are employed. We also know that we don't have the same levels of education that right. other 
people yeah. have in the country. So we have a little bit of, a, and we also are a really young population. So mm. about 60% of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population is under the age of 30. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're a really young population, which is something you often see in developing or third world countries. Um, so we actually do have non-Aboriginal people working within our space. And there's a lot of really amazing non-Aboriginal people working in our space. Um, so, for example, Tim Senior, who was a doctor out at Thurrawal, is an Englishman who's lived in Australia for a long time. He's fantastic. Uh, he's a, a very um, supportive person within our space. Mm. So, but they're usually, so the board is made up of Aboriginal people. So the expectation is that people will engage in a, in a culturally appropriate way within that service. Mm. Okay. I'd love to dig into it more. I know we don't have the capacity here, but I'm trying to think about what is it that makes that space safe to and to be an employer of choice for that community and to be an employer of, you know, the the majority of of that community. There must be so much to dig into (laughs) about what you could learn from that to to potentially take to other other organisations too. So, again, they create a culturally safe place. And that's first and foremost what they do. As an Aboriginal organisation and as a, a not-for-profit and a non-government organisation, they are, their primary focus is delivering care to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in a way that is going to meet all of their needs, mm-hmm. culturally as well as physically. Mm. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are accepting and, uh, and again, it's that collective nature. So their primary focus is, is, is care. And when you've got an organisation which is caring for everybody, even non-Aboriginal people that come in the space, then that makes it a safe place to work and to mm-hmm. come in. And I think, again, they take... So clinical services have to do clinical accreditation here in Australia to make sure that they're able to deliver the care that they say they're going to deliver. They also then have legislation, which is around HR, all of that kind of stuff, work health and safety, all of the the government-related stuff as well. But then they have the um, cultural lens that they're applying over all of that. And that cultural lens infiltrates every aspect of the work that they do. And, I mean, I think, you know, when you've got a board that is running an organisation or governing an organisation and then they've identified a CEO that then can embody the values that that board expects them to embody within the workplace, you're going to see positive change. Yeah. Um, And I guess that's the thing, it's a values-based workplace as opposed to an economically driven workplace. Yeah, I can see that. And it's also purpose-designed whereas what we're talking about is, and as we said before, there was a design at some stage of, you know, whoever was the the main users of our organisations back when they were created and that now we're trying to work out how do we retroactively fit ourselves, (laughs) our new modern workforce with all of its diversity, um, the fruit salad. I heard someone, um, there's some great research around um, racism. You've probably seen a lot of it where, um, you know, people often used to talk about a melting pot and this, yeah. you know, the researchers would say, why are you talking about a melting pot? Like that's when everything boils down, it all becomes the same. We should be talking about fruit salads where you chop everything up and it, it each maintains its distinctiveness. Um, and that's what I think about as organisations now, like how do we create fruit salad organisations, but that the, 
business has to be designed now for a fruit salad, which is, which is a real retroactive approach. It is, but I think we can stop and think about, like I remember reading an article that Bronwyn Fredericks, who is a professor at the University of Queensland, wrote quite a while ago, looking at the physical space of a mainstream health service, and I think this applies to other organisations. So what is it about the physical space that is actually excluding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? So when she looked around the room, all of the art was by non-Aboriginal people. Mm. Uh, the person behind the counter was a non-Aboriginal person and the counter was really high, so it puts up this barrier between us and them. If you wanted to go, so they did have an Aboriginal room uh, where they would run Aboriginal uh, programs, you would have to ask the white receptionist to to have access to that. So then then you're having to ask permission to access something that's set up for you, so there's that power imbalance. So, again, when we're thinking about workplaces, thinking about, recognizing significant events for people of of a variety of cultures actually having the kind of uh symbols on the wall that demonstrate and not the tokenistic symbols yeah but actually making it look and feel as if it is a fruit salad uh, Mm. rather than actually as a white space that just happens to have people from other cultures in it yeah no Um, it's i think the way you smell a place so to speak is actually so important like the real depth of what you can get viscerally as opposed to just the, the optics are important, but the, as you said, how the values actually come out through that space is so key. It's signposting. So when mm. you're doing that in a genuine, authentic way, you're signposting to someone who walks in there into your organisation, this mm. is actually a safe place for me. And where do you see the boundary there between, because obviously, you know, one of the language that we see come through a lot at the moment is moral signaling. Is that the right word? Virtue signaling. Virtual signaling. Yeah. Where is the line between a genuine culture that's trying to represent the fruit salad versus the virtue signaling part? Well, again, talking about smell, you can sniff out someone who's just virtual signaling really mm. quickly. So mm. if I was to walk into an organization and they had an Aboriginal flag on the wall, but that was literally all they had. That for me is a bit of a, it's like a token, whack it up there. Um, for me, if you're, go- if you're in an organisation and you want to diversify, you say, even your physical space, you actually talk to the people who are from the culture that you're wanting to actually be inclusive of and ask them what they would want. Yeah. And if you mm-hmm. can actually, you can tell the difference when you walk into a room and it feels different when it's done by people that are from your culture because mm-hmm. um, there's a genuine and authenticity rather than having like a, a Chinese didgeridoo propped up against the wall. <laughs> they might have a <laughs> yeah, local artist a that they're commissioned to do, you know, a mural that tells the history of the country because that requires effort and it requires thought. So mm. if you can see the effort and thought that's gone into something, you know that they're um, genuine in their attempt. Mm. It does, so much of it comes back to art as well, doesn't it, of being able to use that as an expression of what's happening in your unspoken culture right now too and yet they're so undercut (laughs) through covid as well yeah so you shared with me a great um initiative that you're wanting to showcase um it's called clan uh which stands for caring and living as neighbors uh which is just such a beautiful name so this initiative supports children uh with congenital conditions and syndromes so initially it seems like they started in Vietnam, but then they've extended to Philippines, Indonesia, Pakistan as well. They have several um, syndromes that they uh, kind of zero in on and, and, and support the children on with their health services. So what can you tell us, like, why is CLAN compelling to you? So CLAN for me is an organisation which is working with children that are often overlooked in our, in our countries. 
And for me, children are the future, regardless of whether or not they've got uh, a chronic condition. They have so much that they can contribute. And I think that when it comes to uh, conditions like non-communicable diseases, otherwise known as chronic diseases, often these children are living in some of the worst um, conditions within their own countries and for and, and what this program does it doesn't come in and it doesn't do the helicopter where you get these people from outside your country actually coming in to dictate how things should be run it actually works with the community to be able to support these children more broadly so it's sustainable and it's that sustainability that I think is really important I'm really passionate about making sure that every child has opportunities to be whatever it is they want to be and live their life in a successful and full way. Mm. And part of that is actually building up the community around them, not just focusing on that individual. Absolutely. Uh, just looking through the website, it does look like they've been such a hands-on, really practical, very tangible operation. So I'm glad to know about them. Thank you. I'll keep keep watching them. So I know we need to land <laughs> so I'll finish by asking you a couple of rapid fire questions um and before we do that I just want to thank you as well I really appreciated the conversation I feel for myself personally that it's um like I'm learning so much through this conversation and through my other conversations not because anyone's job is to educate me I know my own clumsiness and I know my own um you know limitations and so it's just such a wonderful thing to meet minds with people like you. So <laughs> I appreciate it very much, the time and the thought. <laughs> so, sorry. No, I was going to say thank you for letting me share as well because yeah. when we're talking about organisations, I know we were focusing on what organisations can do, but organisations are made up of people that have particular mm. worldviews and understandings and even just sharing more general conversations around this will uh, hopefully infiltrate organisations so that they do become safer places. I agree. Yeah. As I said, our work is our life now. So we have to have much broader, much broader conversations. So I'll ask the question and if you can finish off my sentence with whatever, you know, resonates for you. The world right now is? Challenging, but hopeful. Love it. A question I wish I would never be asked again. <laughs> Why do you identify as Aboriginal? You could pass mm. as white. Hmm. Okay, we should have started the, started the whole podcast with that one for another day. My family think I do what for work all day? Talk. <laughs> talk. <laughs> I'm just a talker. Yep. Are they right? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that's a good job. Yeah. My gift to the next guest is? Have fun, enjoy it, and make sure that you're true to yourself. Fantastic. Thank you. And I appreciate the truthfulness in all, in all aspects of this conversation. So thank you, Summer. The real work wouldn't be possible without the contributions of our whole team here at Lantern Rouge. Production support is managed by Mark Hayes and our beautiful music is brought to you by Artlist. That's it for now. See you at work. <laughs>